0: Welcome to Squawk Box. It's that time of the year where we take half the team and we send them away on a little skiing trip up to Switzerland. So we're coming to you from Davos and here at the CNBC headquarters in London. We've even brought in the auspices of Carolyn Roth. So let's get into it. Here are your headlines. Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party claims a historic third straight presidential term as incoming leader Lai ching te Jack's fresh reunification pressure from China.
1: Through our actions, the Taiwanese people have successfully resisted efforts from external forces to influence
2: this election. We trust that only the people of Taiwan have the right to choose their own president.
0: Japan's Nikkei extends its rally, crossing 36,000 points for the first time in almost 34 years, while Wall Street posts its 10th positive week in 11 amid encouraging signs on producer prices.
3: Wall Street's big Bangs kick off the U.S. earnings season with J.P. Morgan and Bank of America both seeing profits slide, while Citi's CFO explains to CNBC its quarterly loss. In
0: 2023, we booked about a billion five of severance and restructuring related costs. In 2024, we're estimating somewhere between $700 million and a billion dollars of, re- of severance and, and organizational simplification related costs.
3: Former President Donald Trump holds a dominant lead in the polls, with 48 percent of the vote to Nikki Haley's 20 in the final NBC poll before today's GOP caucus in Iowa.
0: And here in
4: Davos, the fourth round of Ukraine peace talks ends with little progress, despite more than 80 countries sitting down for the biggest negotiations to date. But once again, no Russia at the table
2: this president this uh, his team we never agreed and never accept any frozen conflict first it's not acceptable by ukrainian society and of course by the presidents and his team
3: Good morning, everyone. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get straight to our top story. Taiwan's ruling Democratic Progressive Party has won an unprecedented third straight presidential term. China skeptic Lai ching te is set to become the country's next president after a decisive election victory over the weekend, taking 40 percent of the vote. China has criticized global leaders who have congratulated Lai, accusing them of, quote, interfering in China's internal affairs. Emily has been following the fallout from Taipei. Emily, walk us through the reactions and all of the ramifications.
1: Uh, Carolyn, a very good morning. Your side, good afternoon from uh, Taipei here. We are just outside the presidential office building after what has been a very eventful weekend here on the back of the elections, the presidential as well as the parliament giving the ruling DPP a third term in office. But we also know that uh, the DPP has lost the majority in lawmaking. Just want to bring you up to speed in some breaking news here. Uh, We are seeing that Nauru, this is the Pacific island has now ended its diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Uh, so that brings to 12 the number of countries that recognize or have diplomatic relations with the island here. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs will be holding a press conference at 2.15 local time. Uh, so that's in about 10, 5 or 10 minutes from now. It is It is not known whether or not that press conference is related to that. Uh, So we are going to be watching the developments there. Uh, In response to the weekend's elections, uh, China says Taiwan is China's Taiwan. And nobody can stop the general trend that the motherland will eventually be reunified and inevitably be reunified. Uh, We have the United States. Uh, This is also something very new. Uh, Just arriving last night, a top delegation of former U.S. executives coming for a post-election election talk they've already met with the president-elect Lai Ching-te as well as the incoming vice president Xiaobi Kim. Uh, Following this meeting we have the U.S. side saying that the delegation expressed congratulations on behalf of the American people accomplishing another democratic election. Lai Ching-te on his part saying that the Taiwan people use their votes to demonstrate to the international community Taiwan's firm belief in democracy and freedom. Sending heavyweight delegations to Taiwan immediately after the election show the U.S.'s strong support for Taiwan's democracy and highlighting the solid friendship between Taiwan and the United States. currently, Taiwan is the world's Taiwan, they say, and they will continue to safeguard peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. So just recapping this weekend's events, uh, as we mentioned, the DPP uh, will hold on to the presidential office. Lai Qingta will be inaugurated on May the 20th, so still a few more months to go in his work as the current vice president before he takes the top job. Just to break down the votes, though, he Only garnered 40% of the total votes. Uh, So the majority went to the opposition that was split between the KMT and the TPP. Voter turnout was 71%. And uh, it's going to be, it remains to be seen how Lai is going to be putting through his policies, approving his spending plans in a parliament that he does not hold a majority in. Uh, But Lai did win a comfortable margin. So the risks, of course, uh, the U.S., China, relations the cross-strait relations uh, those are all expected to remain Uh, so with that we have the Taiwan markets closing the day just fractionally higher because the election result did come in line with market expectation reporting to you live um, before I go we did of course have some uh, comments coming through from the incoming president-elect in his victory speech he said that this was achieving victory for democracy let's listen in to some of that
0: As one of the
1: first and most highly anticipated elections of 2024, Taiwan has achieved a victory for the community of democracies. We are telling the international community that between democracy and authoritarianism, we will stand on the side of democracy. The Republic of China Taiwan will continue to walk side by side with democracies from around the world.
3: Emily, thank you so much for that analysis. Let's get more insight with David Roche, global strategist at Independent Strategy. David, always a pleasure speaking with you. This was Beijing's least preferred outcome and candidate. Key question is, how will Beijing react?
4: I think the first reaction of Beijing will be to lie low and not to provoke things. But that does not mean that Beijing's policies has changed. Uh, If you look at what this election does, it tells you quite clearly there is absolutely no support in Taiwan for reunification with China, and that would not uh, be possible. So the second thing is that China, in particular, Xi has said on two occasions since the beginning, uh, late last year, that uh, reunification is inevitable, and if it's not achieved by diplomatic means, it will be achieved by military means. And the third thing is that Xi always puts the party, the dominance of the party, ahead of anything to do with economics, as he did in Hong Kong, and as he will do on this issue. So the markets will take this with equanimity, but the outcome will not be in any way calm, uh, because you basically have Taiwan on a collision course with uh, China, and the timing of that crisis, which will probably be military, will be determined by many things, including, for example, Donald Trump, which we were talking about a minute ago, won the U.S. election, if there was some form of chaos in the United States, don't forget that creates an opportunity for Xi to do something about Taiwan.
3: So, David, basically you're implying that the markets at this point in time, this Monday afternoon, they're way too sanguine about the outcome, given that you are, you seem to be saying it won't be the status quo. There will be an intensification of this conflict.
4: Yes, and I'm saying that because the status quo in China has changed is progressing towards an outcome to the problem of Taiwan by diplomacy or by military means. And what this election tells you in all of its ramifications, including the, uh, the split of the vote in the Legislative of Yuan, is that Ch- Taiwan is now a mature, uh, sovereign, a democratic state. Uh, and that, that is not something that China will accept. For China, that is separatism. So that's why you're running towards a bigger crisis. The markets don't see it that way, of course, because the markets are governed by the belief that money buys everything. And therefore, if you look at TSMC or you look at Foxconn, uh, you see huge global corporations of global significance when it comes to the economy. And the market assumes that that can never be upset. Upsetting those companies uh, would actually be uh, too disruptive. And that that is really what controls politics, but that is wrong. That is just simply a wrong view. sheer puts politics way ahead of economics always has always has said so and has always done so
0: yeah David, good morning to you then so what does that make or what does that mean then for uh, Jing Tay's uh, sort of policies I mean does he have to moderate those somewhat considering as well on the other side of this let's remember that he may have won 40 percent, but he only has 51% this, uh, 51 percent of the 51 seats in that parliament, meaning that the TPP then become the kingmakers here, so it could go either way. And sometimes he needs to moderate uh, how he he views his policies.
4: Look to deliver on his policies, he has to reduce the dependence of the China, of the Taiwanese economy on China. I mean, a uh, uh, two hundred billion worth of investment in China, uh, well over forty percent of exports going to China, is not exactly the sort of recipe you want to have if you wanted to. Want to move towards a greater degree of independence or sovereignty or whatever you want to call it so he has to address this economic need need uh, and it'll take a long time furthermore uh, as you rightly point out the the um 26.5 uh vote in support of the uh tpp and indeed the increase in uh people who didn't vote at all uh which is uh nearly 29 percent uh would uh would give you to understand that that there's a certain fatigue with the classic politics of confrontation and compromise with China, the kind of KMT, DPP kind of formula. There's a a fatigue with that and a demand particularly by younger voters to get the economy more dynamic, to make housing affordable and all the other things. So before he actually runs straight Into any further confrontation with China, he has to do, he has a big challenge about his domestic economy and getting back all of those disenchanted voters. That's his challenge.
0: Yeah. Um, 13 countries have official diplomatic ties then with Taiwan in trying to ensure that you have a a more diverse economy. Would more countries being added to that list help? Uh,
4: I think it is really not essential. I mean, Uh, Taiwan goes on exporting and increasingly exporting to Europe and the the United States. And that's where the real shift in uh, Taiwan's trade will occur, which would give it a much greater degree of uh, economic uh, autonomy, if I put it that way. That's where it has to happen. The Pacific Islands are significant and the African states are significant in terms of diplomatic recognition. But that, in fact, is not the key factor, the key thing determining where your trade is being successful. So uh, I view it as significant, but I don't view it as vital to his main challenge, economic challenge, uh, which is to actually get his economy facing in a completely different way and get back all those voters who are tired of the confrontation politics uh, of the KMT and indeed the DPP to a certain extent.
3: David, before we wrap things up and let you go, a quick question on the investment implications. Let's say investors were thinking, hey, there's a lot of potential in these Chinese assets. There's a revaluation potential here. Would it be foolish, you think, for them to go into that market right now, based on the scenario that that you've outlined?
4: I think it would be very foolish because what I've outlined without actually mentioning it much is that this scenario is one in which uh, confrontation between the United States and China actually deepens and in which uh, the Chinese uh, success in turning their economy around is quite limited. And finally, that, of course, I don't think we're looking at uh, any real change in the attitude of the Chinese Communist Party to the private sector. I think, of course, they'd like it to be more dynamic. They'd like to shove more money into it. But there's very little sign that they're handling the, the structure of problems in the sort of surgical manner in which they should. So I think there are too many questions of ownership, property rights and policy in China for me to kind of plunge into the ICC's
3: So not a great place to invest right now. That's according to David Roche, Global Strategist, Independent Strategy. Thank you so much for your time. Now, on a programming note, we will be hearing from China this week, of course, when the country's premier, Li Xiang, delivers a special address live from the World Economic Forum's annual event in Davos. Tune in for that speech. That's live on CNBC tomorrow at 10.50 CET. And, of course, it is such a big week ahead in Davos. We will be kicking off our central bank coverage with Austrian National Bank Governor Robert Holzmann. That's at 1330 CET today. We will also be hearing from ECB Governor and Council members Mario Centeno, Klaus Knot and Francois Villeroy de Gallo throughout the week. And it continues from there with interviews with the president of Latvia, Edgars Rinkiewicz, Polish President Andrzej Duda, Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, and Bulgaria's Prime Minister Nikolay Denkov-A-Lot coming up.
0: Oh, all those names, right? All the coverage that we have for you, of course. But before all of that, our coverage does kick off this afternoon with the CEOs of TES as well as Sabanchi Holdings, Circle CEO Jeremy Allaire, as well as the IMF's Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva and ABB Chairman Peter Vosser. Now, tune in for all those conversations starting at 1 p.m. CET today. Welcome back. So we have a shortened trading week across the United States this week. Today being MLK Day, so a public holiday there, so no trading necessarily. But a quick recap of how things have been uh, on Friday, particularly the S&P 500, the Nasdaq managing to inch out some gains. So a bit of a mixed picture overall. The Dow did take in some of those bank earnings that we saw yesterday, and we'll unpack a lot of those uh, as well in this trading picture. Plus, we had PPI data come out. Of course, it was that 0.1% month-on-month figure. Uh, while you saw a year-on-year figure of prices rising one percent of course it was a drop on that month-on-month figure of zero point one percent then so a third of a percent down went the dow jones industrial although citibank didn't manage to pick up actually on the back of its numbers yes you had that restructuring of twenty thousand jobs plus the one-off costs that they continuously have so we'll unpack that a, a little bit nasdaq going a little bit higher there look it still is those tech counters we've been speaking about how perhaps there could be a cycling out of those it's actually changed a little bit, and you're still seeing the NASDAQ pick up uh, with the tech counters still being quite significant in all of that. Onto the treasury front, then, very quickly as well. That declined on, on Friday. Investors still taking in a little bit of that uh, US CPI and PPI inflation reading. Then uh, the Chinese yuan also being very interesting, just overall, if one was to take a look at the currencies. But overall, the tenure is back. Uh, 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 below 4% then, 3.939. The two-year actually dipped off 11 basis points uh, last week, currently sitting at 14.1462. On to the WTI and the oil front then, right? Prices there slipped with traders watching out for perhaps more disruptions out of the Red Sea and the Middle East area. Let's remember that you did have U.S. as well as uh, British forces uh, striking then to try and force Houthi rebels uh, in Yemen from attacking ships along the Red Sea, seeing the Brent crude at $78.36 a barrel there, $72.66 then for WTI. Over the Asian market also, mainland stocks there in China uh, actually had erased some of their earlier losses and are now sitting with an uptick of around a tenth of a percent there. The central bank leaving its medium-term uh, policy loans rate unchanged, Taiwanese stocks, very interesting, not here, but those rose after uh, having the DPP win its third presidential term there. Investors, however, this week closely watching China's fourth quarter GDP numbers. That's out on Wednesday. Japan will also release CPI data. That's coming out on Friday, so we'll take a look at that. The Nikkei continuing its uptick then, having hit 36,000 points, a little bit off that, but now sitting at uh, nine-tenths of a percent higher, 35,901. Carolyn.
3: Let's recap some of the bank results. J.P. Morgan's fourth quarter profit fell after the U.S. lender took a hit of almost $3 billion in charges related to the rescue of regional banks in 2023. Revenue came in at $39.94 billion. That topped expectations. CEO Jamie Dimon, though, struck a cautious note on the U.S. economy, saying inflation could prove to be sticky, prompting rates to remain higher for longer than the market expects. And Citigroup is set to cut at least 20,000 jobs over the next two years as the lender reported its worst quarter in 14 years. The bank, posting a $1.8 billion loss in the last three months of 2023, dragged down by one-off charges and expenses. The cuts account for around 10% of its workforce. Our U.S. colleague spoke to Citigroup CFO Mark Mason and asked him about the bank's outlook for 24
0: we've also seen the loss rates mature and materialize through the through 2023 and we expect that to continue through 2024 and peak in 2024 before starting to normalize. So in some ways this is a maturation of a portfolio that has come out of covid combined with new acquisitions that we've done since then maturing at a more normal pace. Now Bank of America shares fell in Friday's session. That's after the firm reported declining fourth-quarter earnings, missing analyst expectations. Net income fell to $3.1 billion, down more than 50% year-on-year. A lot of that hit by $3.7 billion in one-off charges. On the other side, you had Wells Fargo posting a higher-than-expected fourth-quarter profit. That's as the bank focused its efforts on cost-cutting. However, the lender warned that its net interest income could fall up to 9% this year, potential rate cuts put pressure on the bank a little bit more of an analysis on this one Filippo Aluati is the head of financials then at Federated Hermes Filippo thank you so much for the time appreciate it feels like a lot of noise came out of this as well there were so many different aspects look overall JP Morgan Bank of America Wells Fargo and City actually they all earned one hundred and four billion dollars in 2023 that 's up eleven percent one would think that 's a good news picture overall here but I guess the devil's in the detail because that's the part you, we should have been watching out for, right? Yes, I guess
2: I guess you're correct. I mean, the quarter was very noisy, and we all knew there was uh, the bill for the savings on the regional banks were yeah. coming, and I think. If you one read across all the noises, the, the uh, profitability at all those banks uh, was able to absorb uh, on day one 100 percent of those uh, extra charges. Of course, Citigroup is a different case mm-hmm. because they said uh, uh, 2024 is going to be a turning point for them. and the next few quarters they're going to a little bit um, nose in terms of restructuring charges.
0: Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like the market loved, however, the J.P. Morgan story overall. Yes, the health of the consumer seems to be going well. Jamie Dimon is speaking about how there's a, a certain sense of moderation, perhaps that will uh, come forward then from the consumer as well this year. But the mark, the stock in particular closed out its most profitable year on record. Was the street perhaps a little bit too optimistic when it comes to these fourth quarter numbers, or was it pretty much as anticipated because, you know, they did have that, that drop off of 15 point, uh, 15% year on year uh, for, for their profit for the for the fourth quarter.
2: I think it came in uh, broadly as expected and also if you, if you look at the outlook uh, and then also across the five banks they have already reported. Um, we, more or less, are there in terms of uh, what is the expectation for net interest income. Let's not forget that, for example, an institution like JP Morgan already upgraded the net interest income for the full year, last year 23 three three times. And I think also there's a limit of gravity, so they can upgrade the, the outlook for five times in, in a year. Mm-hmm.
3: Philippe Rubilo made a really excellent point about the health of the consumer going forward. And we, we did see some pretty mixed commentary there because someone said, hey, the consumer's fine. Another bank said, hey, we're seeing a slight deterioration in credit. Citi increased its provisions for credit. So I'm trying to figure out where are we in terms of consumer health going forward? And are provisions too conservative? Are they just right? What do you think?
2: Um, Yeah, I think I would say I'm in the camp of credit normalization versus credit deterioration. And that's I think also is a current thing coming from these uh, um, calls. I think the consumer will be deteriorating from here and that I think is pretty low base because uh, it's been uh, holding up co- quite greatly. And then the second, uh, and that's the point I was making earlier, the inherent profitability of these banks is such they can absorb a deterioration in the credit outlook. And I think also we'll see, possibly this is going to be the topic for 24. we'll see a switch from been obsessed and focused on interest rate maybe to focus a bit more on the credit and I think also credit can be a differentiating factor in the sense that some of the banks will be hit more and I think mostly in the, if you want so the monoline, the specialist lender the banks, the institution they are more focused on the so called subprime even though not many people now call it subprime nowadays and that's the banks they are more diversified, they have other levers they can pull and they can navigate these uh, uh, potentially tricky out for the consumer.
3: Mm-hmm. There are so many factors coming together for these banks globally, not just in the US. It's credit, it's net interest margins. Obviously, rates are going to come down, so that's going to might be putting some pressure on profitability. But I do want to talk about the elephant in the room. As rates are coming down, deal activity. Is it gonna go back up because everyone's waiting for it, especially the private equity companies who are waiting to to flood the banks with their deals? Uh, When do we see an uptick in M&A, in ECM?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a very uh, tricky one, Caroline, because on one side also, we have very strong equity capital markets. And if you look at Q4, that was uh, extraordinary to some extent. But at the same time, since we have multi-year laws of IPOs, very modest uh, corporate finance activities. So you would think at some point in time that the CFOs and the Ciso- CEOs or the different industrial companies will say, okay tricky economy, but at the same time there is confidence in the market, so let's pull the trigger and let's announce this. And to be fair, we have seen some huge uh, M&A, especially if you think U.S. energy, all the major taking up these uh, shale players, there are 60, 70 billion dollar deals. So whether those become the sort of uh, snowballs and then we see more of this deal, remains to be seen. From the bank's perspective, they've been very cautious. They, they're saying there is a pipeline which is building up, but they say at the same time, I think, and that's the right thing to do. Today, uh, uh, since that's all, they've been wrong in so, so many quarters, they say, OK, if the, the pipeline does not materialize, then we will have to take some action, especially in Coscati. Not only Citigroup, but also, I expect, the Goldman and the Morgan Stanley of this world. If the pipeline doesn't build up, then probably there is some uh, chopping to do in the IBD divisions.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express.
4: For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.